Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer, coming to you on Monday rather than Sunday, as I was ill on the Sunday. I considered not putting out a podcast this week at all, but Michael, due to my immense commitment to our listeners, I pulled it together long enough to get this Monday broadcast out. So, despite the fact that we didn't go out on Sunday, it was a glorious weekend, Michael. A day of a new dawn. Increased light. Increased hope for the country, Michael. I was up early to, to see the dawn because I knew it would be a new dawn, a new day, and, and my heart filled with hope. And I, I was almost overcome with emotion to, to realise that once again, finally, he was back. Our lovely, lovely Taoiseach. Yes, Martin is gone and Leo is in. I think, Michael, we have to take a moment to consider the highlights and achievements of Michal Martin's term as Taoiseach. But now that that's over, let us uh, move on to Leo. There was brief talk of a reshuffle, but wisely, when Leo sat down and thought about it, he realised there was no real need for a reshuffle because you can't improve upon the perfection of the last cabinet. This is true. Although uh, Jack Chambers has been appointed as super minister. No, no, super junior minister. Super junior minister. Am I, I can't be the only person that hears that phrase and imagines Jack Chambers in some kind of you know superhero outfit, but like in miniature, like not Superman, but Superboy, because he's a super, but he's a super junior and he's out there. The, the question that came to my mind, Michael, is I wonder if that comes with a badge. Just a little, a little golden stare on his lapel that just says minister. No, 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 no. I want it to come with a cape. I want that when, when Jack Chambers is appearing in the doll to answer questions or to give a briefing uh, on his super junior ministry, that he appears in the doll with a cape because that's the correct way from now on that all super juniors should attire it when, when in the doll chamber. Oh, I mean, we do have Helen McEntee taking six months off on maternity leave, during which Simon Harris will be replacing her. Now, originally, Michael, I must admit, my reaction to that was that if you are going to foreseeably be taking six months off, maybe you should not be appointed as the Minister for Justice. I mean, it's not like being Minister for the Gale Talk, Michael. Things might happen and you might need to do them. But then I thought about it and I went, Helen McEntee not being in the position for six months is good for the country. If anything, she should have more children rapidly in succession. I think that Helen McEntee should take six months off. In fact, she shouldn't take six months leave. She should just take leave and say, it's like you know, when a court rises or a, a group, they arise sine die, which is, is without a day being fixed for their return. And I think Helen should be sine die. And that's where ministers going off on, whether it's sabbaticals or maternity leave or any other kind of absence. I am reminded of the words of the man who said, you know, when it comes to stopping the government doing business. I regard that in much the same moral way as I would say, uh, stopping a bear eating my children. The more you can stop them doing business, the more moral your behavior is. The only, the only, the flaw, the flaw in it, the grease in the oil, the fly in the ointment is the appointment of Simon Harris. No, you could say, Gary, very reasonably, the appointment of Simon Harris to anything uh, from dog catcher upwards would be something of a mistake. But making Simon Harris Minister for Justice, you know, many moons ago, I'm thinking of Helen's very fine piece of legislation on hate speech and hate crime and her very strong positions on free speech, etc. A, a speech that was given by Simon Harris to the Parnell Summer School, which is one of the finest pieces of nasty invective and attack on free speech that I have seen for a long time. 
it was way back in the day. It, it was up for a long time up on on the ministerial web page on the whatever. He was was he minister for health? At the time? What was what was he before he was minister for health? Can you remember in the dark dark days? He was minister for something anyway, and he gave the speech, and I, and it struck me when I reflected that he was now going to be the person involved in this. That while my initial reaction was yes, go, go, and good with our good wishes, go. Jeepers, while Helen. You know, Helen was bad. Hold on to nurse for fear of something worse. Well, I mean, the one the one bright side there, Michael, is that Simon Harris will not just be the Minister for Justice while Helen McEntee is gone. He will continue to be the Minister for Higher Education. Because obviously, Michael, you know, Fine Gael, as the party of law and order, needs an experienced hand at the wheel. And if that means that you'll have to have a justice or a minister over two quite important departments at once. Well, I think that's just what has to happen. You couldn't want to have a situation where some newcomer comes in, uh, or God forbid you suggest that the fact a person is going to be out of work for six months in, you know, an integral job is actually a bit of an issue. So, you know, you've got to bring in Simon Harris or someone else. You couldn't give the job to someone else who will be able to turn up to the office. Party of Law and Order, a, a dear blue shirt friend of mine once observed rather sardonically, yeah, the party of, what was it, fuck all law and not a lot of order. <laughs> but uh, as anybody who has been in the middle of Dublin after half nine at night would testify too. Well, if you're foolish enough to go north of O'Connell Bridge anyway. Yeah, crime seems to be coming an increasing issue of concern to the electorate, or at least the amount of reporting on it has certainly increased. You would think, therefore, that you might want someone who could actually focus on the department rather than double jobbing. And that's not even touching on the question of, if uh, you, know, if you can double job ministerial appointments, maybe they don't need to be, uh, maybe there doesn't need to be quite so many ministers. Now, Gary, just take a, a moment out here and reflect on this question. What does the Minister for Higher Education do? Well, I would say roughly the same as most of the other ministers. Oh, no. The other ministers at least can pretend to do something. There isn't even anything you can pretend to do if you're minister for higher education. Michael, the, the high bar, the high bar for the current cabinet is not actively embarrassing. I mean, I cannot remember a cabinet of such low levels of talent, not to mention so many low people. <laughs> I mean, we had crooks and criminals before, but for the most part, they were competent. Oh, indeed. Indeed. Some very fine, competent crooks in there. Well, I mean, anyway, Leo came in and there will be no major changes. There will basically be no changes at all. You can't improve upon perfection, uh, particularly not when you've kneecapped yourself by saying that you need a particular amount of women in it, because God forbid you have a cabinet that doesn't split neatly upon gender lines. Oh, so since uh, Minister McEntee is being replaced by Simon Harris, I'm just wondering, innocently, is Simon going to identify as a lady for six months? Simon will identify as anything that gets Simon closer to the leadership of Fine Gael. I'm not sure what that would actually be. I really don't know what you would identify as. Answers on a postcard, please, out there, anybody listening. Please, answers on a postcard. What would you have to be? What would you identify as in order to get the leadership of Fine Gael? Anyway, it's a new glorious dawn. And we can all, Michael, I think, look forward to Leo displaying the sort of acute political judgments which we've seen represented in the last while. Yes, yes, I'm sure you will get down on it. So, Michael, you have a story on alcohol. I'm sorry, but before I do that, can I do a plug, please? Um, I've been reading books lately because I have glasses now, and I read a very nice book by Mary Kenny, just 
basically the 100 years of what Irish Catholicism is the foundation of the state, which I would highly recommend to anyone, as usual with Mary Kennedy. It's very well researched and it's light, uh, lightly written, but not a light book. It's really interesting. Anyway, she happened to mention to me when I was talking to her about it, that I think it was her mother was her, had a great fondness for Liam Mellows. And as it happens, uh, Councillor Fiontano Sulawine, who is a Sinn Féin councillor in North Wexford, has actually just written a book about Liam Mellows. And I'd like, if anybody's out there that wants to get somebody a book for Christmas, it's out there, Liam Mellows and the Unfinished Revolution. Revolution. You can get it. If you ring up post any of the shop, the book shops in Gory or Murphy's in Kyle Nair and have it, or ring up Kidal himself, he'll post your copy out. But you better do it quickly because the post, the last post for Christmas is happening soon. It's an interesting one, Gary, actually just, you, I won't go into it now, but Me- Mellows is an interestingly, and a kind of a figure that people want to appropriate for their own particular ends these days, but he's a really uncomfortable figure in many ways. He's a, he's a left winger. He's a socialist, definitely. He's a hardline Republican. And yet at the same time, deeply devout. He went around I think he was one of the ones that used to go around with a copy of Thomas Akempin's The Imitations of Christ, which was a medieval spiritual classic with him all the time. Incredibly devout man, almost monastic. While they, which means that for their aspects of his character for the modern, shall we say, Republican left, not quite not working with that side of things. But anyway, we have some good news, Gary, on the drink front. There has been a uh, an interesting bit of. Uh, if I can find it now, it has disappeared. They have published uh, a piece of research on the number of people in the country, in Europe, that die of alcohol disorders, right? And I won't let, I don't think anybody would be surprised to discover that countries such as Belarus, in fact, in fact, Belarus, comes top of the pops when it comes to that particular issue. But you know the way, Gary, you and I have been hearing for a long time that Ireland is in the grip of terrible, terrible, terrible problems with alcohol. Have you heard that, Gary? Did you know that? Have you have you heard that? I think I recently read a report talking about the shocking levels of fetal alcohol syndrome in this country. And remember we were told that during the pandemic we were being washed away by a wave of wine, was it? A tidal wave of wine or something? Coming into your house. Stealing your children. I mean, yes, coming to your house and stealing and drawing your children. The good news is, to be shock and surprise, I'm sure, we actually have the lowest rate of deaths from alcohol use and disorders per 100,000 people in the north and centre of Europe. If you want to get a lower figure than us, you have to hit the Mediterranean, places like Spain, Italy, Greece. No, and Turkey. No, the fact that places like Turkey, Iraq and Syria, which are Muslim countries, have a lower rate of alcohol-related uh, deaths, I don't think would come as a massive surprise to anybody. Uh, there you go. Russia is 14.6 deaths per 100,000. Uh, Belarus, 21.3. Ukraine, 13.2. Now, this kind of surprise, well, it not surprise me. Denmark. We think of Denmark as being one of those very fit up Nordic cycling, well-behaved kinds of countries, do we not, Gary? Stereotypically? Hmm. Denmark had 8.7 deaths from alcohol use per 100,000. 8.7. Sweden had 3. Finland, 6.6. Germany, 4.5. We had 1.5. I assume this is per capita. 1.5 death from alcohol use disorder. Now, you could perfectly well say, well, you know what? Any death from alcohol use disorder is a bad thing. You know, I could understand that, especially if you happen to be one of those people who has been bereaved because of a misuse and abuse of alcohol. That's a perfectly understandable thing. But life, particularly life in a democracy, is a trade-off. And it has to be looked at in balance. France is 3.8, Germany is 4.5. Our nearest neighbours, Britain, the United Kingdom, 2.1. So 
Now, I would make the point, Gary, that these figures, as far as I can, I'm mean, I desperately looking for the date because I had the piece of information which told me that. I think this is from around, they were collated, this is, they're published recently, but based on figures from around two years ago. So these are not figures which show a dramatic improvement in our the state of our health as a result of a few months of minimal unit alcohol pricing or the fact that they put those, you know, saloon doors that they have in supermarkets now. The booze burger. <laughs> I was I was in and out uh, today doing some Christmas shopping and so I was in and out of that section of the gym quite a bit. There's something very satisfying about pushing your trolley through the, the doors in the manner of the cowboy in the white hat entering the saloon looking for the black-hearted Sam that did your girl wrong on your way to picking up a bottle of Piers Porter. Also, it both keeps children out of your way and gives children something that they can look longingly at and want to get into later. You say that, Gary. On the other hand, as I came close to discovering today, if you actually have one of the smaller, as you know, children come in various sizes, and some of them are like only come up around four, three, three foot, and actually can be very well concealed by these swinging doors. So when if you if you actually go through them rather too vigorously with your trolley, you can come close to giving a, a child a good hard slap in the face. Did you plant some child? I very nearly did. Yes. But I was in. I was shocked, Gary, shocked to see a child in the alcohol area. What kind of parent would bring their child into that kind of proximity to vodka and wine and gin and cases of Coors and Budweiser? I mean, I can't. I, I admitted there was a moment where I did think, should I call social services? Because you know, what's going on here? But I did because it's Christmas, you know. And I'm just amazed that a child could be attracted to the forbidden area of mystery and adult things. Well, I think that the child's mother and father were more attracted to it and they felt that it was better that the child came into the area with them rather than leave the child outside in the in the, in the the body of the supermarket while they made their selections for their Christmas wines. So what, Michael, does this report say is the cause of our fantastic data? <laughs> well, the cause is we don't we don't we don't uh we don't consume uh, alcohol in in such a fashion that makes us die from alcohol use disorders i mean this is not news i mean that sounds like what what do you mean okay for example if we looked at the the who figures for the last number of years we for example and this is borne out again in this we appear at a higher decile of consumption than Sweden does, right? But we are in the decile below Sweden when it comes to, for example, accidents or hospitalizations associated with alcohol consumption. Now, these, we're talking here about deaths. This is a, a slightly more serious subject. We're talking actually about people who die from alcohol related But the WHO also compile figures based on the numbers of people who are hospitalized either by, through accidents or through uh, organic illnesses which occur, which are related to alcohol consumption. And we uh, we are in the decile below Sweden. And what that tells you, Gary, is that, you know, we are constantly being told about, you know, how we, the, the way we drink is bad and we have this bad relationship with that. And I am pains to say that there are certainly people in Ireland who have a bad relationship with alcohol and who drink alcohol in a way which is going to damage them. And, you know, while you can say, well, everybody has their own agency, the fact is that alcohol is one of those things which will also damage the people around you. If you're in a family, it will damage your family. Alcohol is also weird. Well, weird. It's a it's a bad drug in this way that unlike an awful lot of other drugs, alcohol will actually, the disinhibiting element of alcohol makes people violent. 
I'm sorry to distract me, but you know about this kind of stuff. Like, can you think of another drug that makes people violent the way that alcohol does? Uh, there are certain there's certain options, mostly in the sort of amphetamine or a strong stimulant Meta. category. Methamphetamine. Anything which has a disinhibitory effect has the risk of increasing violence. But if you, if you were to take, say, things like benzos, narcotics, opiates, uh, cannabinoids, those kinds of drugs. You ever seen someone on an opiate, on like opium? You've seen people on heroin. Yeah, they're not picking a fight with you. And if they are picking a fight with you, they're not doing it very quickly. They really aren't. I mean, I, I think I've said to you before, I don't know if it was on there, but I used to go to work through Central Station, you'd see many, many heroin addicts around you, and people were very frightened of them. And I could understand there was a certain, certain visitor of distaste because these unfortunate people had reached a point in their lives where they were not uh, they were not pleasant people to look at or to be around. But frankly, they weren't in a position to, to chase you. They didn't have enough motor capacity to go after you and a good sharp push at them with your briefcase and they were gone backwards no the these no, this was not uh, these people when when under the influence of the narcotic they were not somebody that really represented a terrible threat a very sad very very sad sight so the the the, the, the extrapolation from this Gary is that first of all as we know, we're drinking less anyway. There's There has been a fundamental culture change because it's not just that we're drinking less, but if you look at the patterns, people under 35 and people under 30 and then further down, that younger people are drinking considerably less and consistently less and they're drinking in a different way. They're not drink. They're not being drinking. And you know, just to repeat oneself again, I don't. I, I'm sure I've asked you this before, but can you rem- do you remember, Gary, what constitutes a binge? I used to know what constituted a binge, Michael, but it's been a while, and the definition changes so often that I'm no longer sure if 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 what I think constitutes a binge is still a binge. Well, I'm, I'm sure it is, but. Lower numbers may also be now. That is true. I haven't actually checked the official UN numbers for probably the, about a year. So I should check that up because it may have indeed changed. But a binge was basically three pints. Three pints of what would be standard alcohol here, which is around... What's a standard alcohol beer here? 4%? is less than 4%. 3.7, something like that. Anyway, it's around three pints is a binge. If you have three pints in a sitting, you are a binge drinker. And if you have if you have three pints, if you have a binge more than once a month, you are a problematic binge drinker. So just for the dear listeners out there, I haven't heard all of this before, and many of you have. When you read about these stories, Ireland's problem with binge drinking and all these people, anybody who drinks pretty well in Ireland at all is or has at some stage been a binge drinker. So, you know, caveat emptor when when it comes to the reports that you see. Anyway, Gary, the good news is that we are very, we are doing pretty well, it seems to me, if you look at the, the broad scheme of things. Outside, the, we look at Central Europe or Northern Europe, we are at the bottom of the pile. You have to hit Italy before we actually start to look. We're better than the Swiss. It's not often we can say that. We have better numbers than the Swiss, considerably better numbers than the Austrians. Slovenians are doing quite badly, but the Serbs, that's weird. Oh, no, it's not Serbia, it's Bosnia, sorry. Bosnia, naturally enough. Well, actually, we're doing better than Bosnia. And Bosnia has a significant, as you know, Muslim population. Well, you would have thought it would have suppressed the figures, although possibly the Serbs and the Croats are making up for it with extra drinking in Bosnia. I don't know. What I've, uh, what I've also, what I always found interesting about drinking, about the definitions of binge drinking particularly, is the idea of the standard drink. Yes, you know, yes. You can have 
six standard drinks in one sitting before you were engaged in bin drinking. And then you look how they define it, and they define it by units of alcohol. Yes. Oh, God. The problem, Michael, is that half a pint of beer is a uh, is a standard drink. So your average pint has two standard drinks in it. A shot of whiskey is a standard drink. But I suspect, Michael, that if you look at someone who's had, let's say, three pints over an hour versus someone who's had six slugs of whiskey, those people are going to have very different experiences. Absolutely, the way you consume it. But by the way, Gary, simply you bl- blithely saying what a standard drink is and what a what a unit is like that's ob- that is not obvious it is not there is no such thing as a standard drink internationally nor is there an international agreement on what a unit is we have different measurements here than in the united kingdom and we have different measurements in the united states do you remember when i was trying to work out the figures for what it was going to cost people when they with minimum unit alcohol pricing and i was looking at the change in the price of uh, what it would cost to buy four cans of tesco own brand lager which were i think they were smaller than it was like 440 milliliters and it was 3.4 percent alcohol and i made a mistake because i looked at the figures from the uk which I got from because I was looking at Tesco and, and so on and so forth. And I got it wrong because the, the numbers were different. So it is a nightmare trying to work out when they talk. When you read a paper of this, you have to work out where it was published, what they mean. Do we mean the same thing here? It is very confusing. And I'm not convinced that they don't intend it to be very confusing, in fact. Because when you say, like, there you say, if you said six standard drinks, and I'm speculating here, but if you said to, Joe or Jane Block on the street or in the pub, in the pub. What is a standard drink? What would six standard drinks be? How, how do you think they would understand that? Well, I would never presume to speak for the public, Michael. Indeed, I put I put I, I put it weekly and said I am not convinced that it is obvious that they would think a standard drink was a half pint. I don't know the last time I saw somebody ask for a glass of Guinness or a glass of Heineken in a pub. Once upon a time, ladies, ladies used to drink glasses and men would drink pints. And in fact, when I was in college, there was a there was a pub in Maynooth which wouldn't serve a lady a pint because it wasn't ladylike. I think most people would think a gin or a beer or whatever was, a, you know, that's what it is. So six pints. I would also point out that um, there are different definitions of binge drinking. I mean, it's also called heavy episodic drinking. Yeah. I've seen a definition of this, Michael, which is simply drinking until the point where you become intoxicated by your consumption of alcohol. I would again point out that what we what is considered first of all, what is considered to be intoxication. There is it isn't like there is a single standard. If you're in the United States and they ask you to get out of your car, they might recognize you. They'll ask you to Oh, stand on one leg or walk a straight line or touch your nose with your finger and this kind of thing. Secondly, there is a difference between drinking X amount of alcohol on a full stomach and X amount of alcohol on an empty stomach. Drinking X amount of alcohol quickly and X amount of alcohol slowly. Also, by the way, there is a difference in the, between the amount of alcohol it will take a larger gentleman to become intoxicated and a smaller lady to become intoxicated. Or indeed a smaller gentleman. Because actually... When it comes to the, at certain points, women have a higher capacity to take alcohol up to a certain point than men do, and then it changes. It's I can't remember the biology of, but 
Big fat men can drink more without becoming pissed than small thin men can. And if you have a big fat full man drinking slowly and a big and a small thin empty man, but also physical fitness affects it as well, apparently. Anyway, there are many, many things that will affect what constitutes intoxication. Yes, like many things can affect it. Uh, I think the worst drinking experience I have in my life, one of the worst of them, was shortly after I took up boxing for the first time. And I was on a bit of a diet, hadn't eaten much, had an amount of drink that should have done, I mean, on a regular day, Michael, wouldn't have even slowed my stride. Yeah. And just woke up on the floor. No, of course, we don't We don't encourage that, do we, Gary? We don't. I can, I, looking back, I can say that uh, most of the times, which have caused me continual embarrassment later on in my life, have been under the uh, influence of alcohol. No other drugs, always alcohol. Oh, God. Oh, oh, the things one says, the things one does. And the incredibly boring conversations that you have. Oh, the things you inflict. And then later on in life, you end up at those kind of parties where you're not drinking and you have to listen to what people who are drunk sound like. And you realise that you sound like that yeah. as well. I knew a jockey who was teetotaler and he hung around with a lot of people who are very, very far from being teetotal. And we were at a party one time, and I was half cut at this point, and I'm consciously of this when I was talking to him. I said, what's it like? I mean, it must be horribly boring. Because I had had an experience where I'd been driving people the previous week, and I'd had to be there. And God, Gary, listening to these people. And the stories, of course, are circular. You know, they all go around and around and around, and they never get to the end. Because everybody feels they have to recapitulate every point. Everybody, oh yeah, and it's gone. Oh, it's horrible. And he said to me, "Oh, I just don't listen. I just put my face on, and I'm I'm gone to another place in my head. I just sit there and wait until they want me to drive them home." It was almost a Zen-like capacity he had, you know, which I really admired. And I think that if you were in, if you were the kind of person that hung around with the, me when I was drinking, I think, Jesus, you'd have to be Buddha. I think we must close it there, Michael, as I'm rapidly fading. Are we going to wish the people a happy Christmas, or are we going to pretend that we're going to be here next week? We uh, we will wish the people a happy Christmas. And actually, I suppose to close, I, I will give uh, props to an academic, Michael. Yes. Considering we are generally not uh, terribly kind to academics, mostly because their standards are incredibly low, and Irish academics seem nearly intrinsically incapable of putting together a proper study and running it. Go on. But setting that aside for a, mo- a moment, Michael, and being the bigger men, <coughs> I wanted to recommend a, a very good book by an academic uh, called Calculus Made Easy. <laughs> yeah, because everybody's going to run out and buy that. I got a copy of there because I, I was like, I'm terrible at calculus. I should brush up on it. It's by a guy called Sylvanus P. Thompson. It's from, I think, 1910. Oh, you mentioned this to me. You mentioned this to me. The subtitle is called What One Fool Can Do, Another Can Do. And it basically is a very, very good breakdown of um, calculus and how to understand it, which is not surprising because Sylvanus P. Thompson was actually a professor of physics. Uh, but as he says himself, he is uh, he uh, he starts the book by noting that uh, there are a great deal of fools who are able to use calculus and therefore any other fool should be able to learn it, even if you're not a particularly clever fool. <laughs> he starts by saying that he is a remarkably stupid fellow and here's how he's done it. But it actually is an excellent tool for learning calculus. It's clearer than any maths textbook I have ever read. And it was written in 1910. So I'll get onto Amazon and see if it's available, I think. I, I will actually include a link to it at the bottom of this podcast. 
So anyway, oh, by the way, we're improving people's lives, Michael. We are incrementally maybe but we are we are definitely improving their lives you see we started by giving people small items of homework and telling them to read reports on their own time and now we're giving them books on calculus before you know it you'll have gotten a classical education by the way folks tune in next week just in case that we have actually done another podcast because we made it happen you never know but otherwise have a happy christmas all the best